You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts 21, 17 through 36. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they have previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut, and they were seeking to kill him. Word came, oh, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed crying out, away with him. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray that even through this uh, strange and crazy story of Paul's in the book of Acts, that we might come to know and trust you more devotedly with our whole hearts and souls and minds and strengths. So, God, we do pray that you would search us and know us and that you would indeed have your way with us to make us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see many of you all this evening uh, for the first time, some of you, and 
many months, so it's good to all be in this room together. Again, my name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I would love to after the service. I'm one of our five pastors here. Uh, Well, over the past four or five years, I've shared with you a couple of times one of my favorite illustrations for the doctrine of union with Christ. Union with Christ being one of the most important doctrines throughout the whole Bible, that of it being um, our hope as Christians isn't merely to have our sins forgiven, but that by faith, we humans, a weak, a broken, a rebellious, even a dead, spiritually dead sinner by faith can become united to Christ. That is, Jesus' death on the cross becomes the death that we should have died by him becoming our substitute. But even more than that, his spiritual life becomes our spiritual life. We are united to him as branches on a tree. Even now, as we thought about in Acts 1, thinking about the ascension of Jesus, that even now we are united to him in the heavenly places in the completed work of the right hand, his completed work at the right hand of the Father. We thought about in Acts 1 that Christian, remember this truth, that because of your union with Christ, no one other than Christ is closer to the right hand of the Father than you. This is good news. But the illustration that I wanted to share, and hang in there with me, this is all going somewhere, and this is coming back to Acts. But uh, the illustration of this doctrine of our union with Christ is uh, a pastor who wrote a book, uh, a pastor uh, in Southern California. He had a friend in high school who was Mickey Mouse at Disneyland. That is, it was her job to put on the costume and become Mickey Mouse. Here's the thing, though. He says that at school, she was very shy. She was really awkward. She was introverted. But as soon as she put on the costume, she became Mickey Mouse and all that that entailed. Uh, And if you're new around here uh, and you haven't heard that illustration, you can perhaps see where this is going. But uh, this week's podcast episode of This American Life, one of my favorite podcasts, uh, they took that illustration to just a whole new level. Uh, There was a story of a high school girl in Arizona who is her high school's mascot. And similarly, in school or at home, she is shy and awkward. But when she becomes the tiger on Friday nights, Uh, She transforms. Uh, Even, get this, when she's wearing the costume, she can do a perfect cartwheel. But then when she takes off the head of the tiger, she, like, can't do it. I don't know. There's something weird and psychological going on there. But together, we've thought about that the Christian life is one of wearing the Jesus costume. We don't pretend to be someone that we're not. We just, day by day, grow into the character of the person whom we are united with, even able to live and act and believe differently than we would on our own without him. So, what's all this got to do with the book of Acts and Paul in Jerusalem? Throughout this book, we've seen the author of Acts, Luke, we've seen him go out of his way to make parallels between Jesus' story and the gospel account that Luke wrote, what we call the book of Luke or the gospel of Luke, parallels between Jesus's story and the story of Jesus's people in the book of Acts. And so now that Paul, like Jesus, has kind of like set his face toward Jerusalem, Acts 21 here should feel very similar to Jesus's treatment when he arrives in Jerusalem, that, that week that we deeply consider, the week before Easter. We see mobs, sham trials, violence, Roman officials, 
And so tonight, we'll, we be, we'll be careful to distinguish that Jesus is Jesus. His work and his life is singularly unique. His cross and atonement uh, and the atonement that his cross offers, it can never be repeated. It is finished. And yet, now wearing the Jesus costume, now becoming like him, we should expect for the world to treat his people in the same way that it treated him. And so tonight, we're going to see Paul move toward Jerusalem in two halves. Two halves that are all surrounding his suffering, Paul's suffering, as he follows in Jesus's suffering. So we'll think through, first of all, a boldness to suffer, and then a resolve to suffer. A boldness and a resolve to suffer. And like we thought about two weeks ago, Paul here, and throughout this book, and especially here tonight, he's no masochist. He isn't needlessly seeking out pain and suffering. There is a reason for all of this. So let's look. Uh, First of all, a boldness to suffer. Uh, I asked Haley to just begin reading for us in verse 17 of chapter 21, but we're going to pick up the whole chapter here, beginning in verse 1. Now, whenever Luke, the author of this book, is actually with Paul, we know that he's with Paul when the narration switches to like the pronoun we, um, it, it gets really, really detailed. Uh, Aaron and I were just talking about chapter 27, when Luke is like giving all of these crazy accounts of their voyage across the Mediterranean Sea and winds. And I mean, it's just detailed, detailed, detailed. Some, he, here, Luke is telling of this like island hopping travel back from Asia across the Mediterranean to Jerusalem. And some of these places are, that he's giving here are undoubtedly important for Luke's source gathering almost like the the journalist that he's becoming here in his interviewing process. He not only here in in chapter 21 meets Philip in Caesarea, and he likely hears all about that time when Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch, or perhaps even before that when Philip was serving tables as one of these proto-deacons in the Jerusalem church. All of these things that Luke would someday write down as now Acts 6 or Acts 8, but likely here... Luke also met Cornelius, or those who were there with Cornelius to tell and one day write down of all of the events that we now know of as Acts 10. But in several of these places, and in fact, a couple of places that we've already seen leading up to chapter 21, a confusing thing happens. Something we've seen a couple times, but in verse 4, in the town of Tyre, some of the Christians that are coming to meet with Paul and Luke and their traveling entourage, they come and they tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Not only that, but in verse 4, Luke tells us that they tell Paul this in the Spirit or through the Spirit. And then a really memorable scene happens in Caesarea where a prophet named Agabus, whom we remember from chapter 11, when this guy Agabus comes and he tells and rightly prophesies of a coming famine. This guy, Agabus, this prophet, shows up again, and he comes up to Paul, and he takes off Paul's belt. That would have been a weird moment, I'm sure, for all who were there, and probably weird for Paul. And he takes Paul's belt, and he takes it, and then he ties up his own hands with Paul's belt, and then presumably, because it's like a long double or triple wraparound belt, he's got the length to not only tie up his own hands, but then tie up his feet with the same belt. And he says in verse 11, he says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, 
This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Agabus is following a long line of prophets, the prophets of Israel who would use physical symbols as a way of kind of like, uh, kind of a symbolic way of enacted prophecy, saying, look at this thing, this is what will be. Not necessarily that these future events would not have happened had this prophet not done this, but Agabus and those like him before him, are, they're kind of like reaching into the future and like dragging the future into the present so that you can see, the people who are all present can see what is going to happen in a very real, symbolic, tangible, and physical way. So it sure looks like the Spirit does not want Paul to go to Jerusalem. This, along with what Paul does when he gets to Jerusalem, has led some to believe that Paul is wrong-headed, that Paul is maybe even sinfully stubborn, just plowing through all of these warnings by the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. I mean, we know if we just keep reading, his arrest is coming. All of these people who are warning him are telling him his arrest is coming. The rest of the book of Acts, basically from where Haley left off, the rest of the book is essentially one long trial till we get to the end of chapter 28. His missionary journeys here are over. Like, just think about, if Paul had listened to Agabus or listened to all of these other people in this first half of this chapter, if he had just listened to them and not gone to Jerusalem, Just think about the amount of churches that Paul might have been able to plant or strengthen. Think about the amount of letters that Paul might have been able to write. Our Bible could have been bigger. Come on, man. Why didn't he just listen? But the tension here is that Paul himself told the Ephesian elders in chapter 20, where we were two weeks ago, he told them that he himself was constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. The language he's using is that he was like bound, he was tied up, he was handcuffed by the Spirit of God who was taking him to Jerusalem. So it could be that someone is hearing the Spirit wrong. Those who are uh, warning Paul or Paul himself have just, they've gotten some wires crossed and they are all confused. Someone is hearing it wrong. But I think more likely Everyone is rightly understanding that Paul will indeed be arrested in Jerusalem, that trouble is coming, but that the folks who are warning Paul not to go are actually then coming to the conclusion that therefore he shouldn't go. Are you following me? In other words, the warners and Paul are receiving the exact same message, that he will be arrested in Jerusalem. They are seeing the same vision, but then they are just coming to different conclusions about what should be done that this arrest, that this suffering in Jerusalem should be avoided at all costs, the warners are concluding. But Paul does not come to that conclusion, just like Jesus pushed through all of the warnings of coming suffering that would await him in Jerusalem, so Paul pushes forward as well. Verse 4 is indeed difficult. These people are warning in the Spirit but I think they are coming to their own conclusions. After all, Agabus does not tell Paul not to go. 
He doesn't do this whole belt thing and then say, so therefore, stay away, don't go, thus says the Lord. He's just saying, this is what's going to happen. It's the people who hear Agabus, Luke included, who then react and plead with Paul not to go. To which Paul answers in verse 13, he says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I, didn't, I don't think I realized that breaking my heart was like a biblical phrase. I, maybe it's like the first time it's ever been used, but breaking my heart here, people, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul is not some careless martyr, but like Jesus, he loves Jerusalem. He loves the people there. He loves the amount of people there who will be there. These pilgrims who would be coming for Pentecost and Passover, these, these uh, feasts and festivals in which Jerusalem would be just bloated with people. Paul does know that trouble awaits him, but if we were to just use other places that he's written in other letters, just listen to what he says in Romans 9. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Why in the world would Paul say that he would be cut off from Christ? That's crazy talk. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Of course, he knows that this is not possible, but he's saying if there was some deal to be made where I could lose Christ, but that would mean my whole country, my, my nation, my kinsmen might come to know Christ, I'd take that deal in a second. If suffering, if prison, if even death comes, that's fine. But if he can get the opportunity to preach Christ, the, uh, the, the hope of Israel, the hope of the nations, and that some of his countrymen might come to believe or come to believe more deeply, then it will all be worth it. That's okay. Come what may. And Luke and the others essentially come to that conclusion as well. They say, let the will of the Lord be done. They realize they're not talking him out of it, so God's will be done. Because here's the deal. It's through this coming imprisonment that Paul actually not just gets to Jerusalem, but actually gets to Rome. And it's through his appeals that he doesn't just get to preach Christ to his countrymen, but also to one ascending Roman official after another. It's in his imprisonment that he actually does write many more New Testament letters. The Spirit thought fit that the, the letters that we have that make up the Bible are all we need for life and godliness. We should not be hoping and praying and wishing that like 3 Corinthians is found, or Laodiceans, the letter to the Laodiceans is found, or something like that. If we can trust the Spirit in the inspiration of the Scriptures, then we can trust the Spirit in the compilation, in the preserving of the Scriptures. But Paul, like Jesus, he knows what lies before him, but all of this, it doesn't matter because the gospel is better. Jesus is better. To live is Christ, certainly in the now, but whether it's tomorrow or 50 years from now, to die is actually gain. So what can man do to me? Paul must be thinking. Now, I hope you were encouraged last week by some of the stories that Mr. M shared with us of life amongst an unreached people group. Last week, well, almost two weeks ago now, on a Monday night uh, at the Southern Baptist Convention, this huge 
convening of people from different churches around the country. The highlight of the whole thing for me, I think I can probably speak for those of us who were with us as well. The, the highlight of the whole thing for me was that very first night when 64 workers, some of these workers single, some newlyweds, some married with children, some empty nesters, 64 people were commissioned by the IMB, the International Mission Board, the sending agency of the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention that now we and many other of us around the country are now just kind of rebranding ourselves as Great Commission Baptists. We're not bound to a region, a particular region of the United States, but we want to be about sending people into the nations. Many of these folks that you see on all of these canvases, the M's, the E's, the V's, Miss P even now, are all sent by and through the IMB. But at this commissioning, there were dozens and dozens of these 64 folks who had to speak behind a screen so that all you saw was a, a silhouette, a black silhouette of their bodies for the same reason that we use just initials of last names. These folks are in or are moving to countries where it is not altogether safe to live as a Christian. Now, none of our workers live out of, like, dread or day-to-day -day fear, but they could potentially get kicked out of their country at any time. But, like Paul, here getting to Jerusalem, like Paul in Romans 10. These folks have centered their lives around this reality that Paul wrote in Romans 10. And then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so, guys, I, I was sitting there almost now two weeks ago in Nashville, envisioning the future, not in like some like Agabus-type moment of spirit-led prophecy or something, more like, like a hopeful and prayerful expectation for the future, that perhaps year after year after year, some of you, some of us, might be silhouettes on the stage. So you saying, hi, my name is and I am from Christ Church in Albuquerque, and I am being sent to North Africa, or we are being sent to Central Asia. Because people who are made in God's image are living and dying without knowing or hearing the name of Jesus, the Savior and the Creator of the world who knows and loves them. How will they believe if they do not hear? Some of us will go, and some of us will send, and God will get all the glory. But there must first be a boldness to suffer. Maybe not beating, maybe not imprisonment, maybe not death like Paul, though maybe. But certainly the suffering of leaving family and friends and comfort, the suffering of learning a new language and culture. And we will weep as we send you, just as those who wept as Paul left them on his way to Jerusalem. But we will not try to talk you out of avoiding this suffering. And if we do, well, you can just respond with, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die for the name 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. But boldness actually isn't boldness without then action. Words are just words. Paul follows through with resolve. And so now, moving out of our first section, Luke says in verse 15, following in Paul's boldness and resolve, he says, and after these days, we got ready, and we went up to Jerusalem. So now, secondly, a resolve to suffer. Let me just sum up the first half of this second section, because it's pretty confusing. Maybe you were listening to Haley saying, say what now? Like, who's shaving heads for what? But Paul gets to Jerusalem, and he meets with James and the other Jerusalem elders, and he tells them all that has happened in his last trip, what we typically call his third missionary journey. That, all of that includes his stops in Philippi, and Thessalonica, and Berea, and Athens, and Corinth, and Ephesus. These are long, big stops. He has been gone for a long time. He shares not only the amount of both Jews and Gentiles who have understood come to understand Jesus of Nazareth to be the fulfillment of all of God's promises and the culmination of all of human history. But he also shares of the planting and the establishing of churches. He shares of the development and leadership of elders and deacons being installed to lead these churches. The kingdom of God is breaking in all over the world like sunlight through a cloudy day. And the Jerusalem elders are thrilled. They are praising God. And they tell Paul, perhaps of what's been going on here in Jerusalem. They say, many thousands in Jerusalem have also believed. But then they follow this up. The problem is that it seems like these new believers are much like the apostles were in Acts 1. When they themselves, before the ascension of Jesus, the apostles asked Jesus when he would restore the kingdom to Israel. When, like, when's David going to sit on his throne and make us great again? It appears these perhaps many thousands of believers are thinking in the same vein. The old ways of Israel and the law are still the expected and even required norm. And understandably so. Like for millennia, for millennia, to love God it meant to follow Moses, to follow the law. Like David Good Israelites were taught from the womb to meditate on and to follow and to love the law like sweet honey. And now, wait, wait, what? What now? We're here and Paul is preaching. What now? The people of Jerusalem are hearing stories that Paul is teaching all over the world that people can now and follow God apart from the law? There are God-fearing people who are scared to death here about what some today might call some like leftward or liberal drift happening in the nation of Israel or something. People are just making up stuff as they go. People not taking things as seriously as, they, as these people do. What seems to be a doing away with their culture and their law altogether. Now, if you'd like to think more about this, about the relationship of the law to, th- to, to this moment in time and today, uh, you could maybe go back and find our sermon on Acts 10, when Peter comes to Cornelius, or even 10 sermons on the Ten Commandments that we thought through from 2019, as well as another one or two or three sermons just on the law after those Ten Commandments. Uh, but here's the thing about this in this moment. 
There are ongoing expectations, ongoing demands going on amongst the Jews. These expectations and demands that have not fully taken into account, not fully taken into deep theological reflection about what the life and death and resurrection of Jesus meant and has done of now a life of freedom from the law through Christ. But the elders, they want Paul to be able to gain an audience with these folks who are zealous for the law, who are committed to the law. They've got a plan. Because if Paul just walks outside and he starts preaching, he starts preaching on all of the implications of freedom that has come through Jesus, he's going to be rejected and then likely even be assaulted right away. So they they give him a plan. Now, since Paul has been away from the, he's been away from the land outside of Israel, he is to now go to the temple and he has to first go through a week-long purification ceremony to be able to go into the temple since he's been outside of the land. On top of that, the elders know of four dudes who are under a vow. This kind of vow, might call a Nazarite vow, these are outlined in Numbers 6. It is a time of special commitment to God for a particular time and for a particular purpose. During this vow, you are not to come into contact or in close proximity with anything that is dead. You have to stay away from anything alcoholic. You are not to let your hair or touch your hair, just let it grow. So these four guys are under a vow. We saw Paul himself under a similar vow in Acts 18. And at the end of the vow, you made offerings to the priest. And then, and only then, after that, you can cut your hair after however long it's been. So the elders are suggesting that Paul go through his own purification, his own week-long purification ceremony, and then, while he's there, pay for the offerings of these four guys that they have to make in order to complete and finish their vow. By doing all of this, Paul is going to show the temple leadership and therefore the whole city that he is still serious about following God. He's not trying to just burn the whole thing down. He can be trusted. And just to make sure he knows that everyone's on the same page here, the elders tell Paul that they themselves, they're not requiring people to follow every bit of the law of Gentile converts. They tell them of what the Jerusalem council had decided upon in Acts 15. They say, we're still doing that. That's all we're requiring of Gentiles when they come to Christ. They should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. They're to abstain from blood. They're to abstain from meat that was strangled. That is eating and dealing with meat that still has its blood in it. They're to abstain from sexual immorality. In other words, and to recap Acts 15, the leadership of the church has wisely decided that new Gentile Christians should distance themselves. Distance themselves from former pagan temple worship practices for the sake of the clarity of the gospel. But all that to say, these folks are saying, we still believe and we still hold and we are still teaching that you do not have to become a Jew to become a Christian. But go do this thing. Go, go follow through with this plan so that you can continue to preach. And surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, Paul goes along with us this idea. Many people have thought and taught throughout the years that he's completely sold out. Paul has drifted back into some sort of legalism to just gain the approval of these Jerusalem elders or something. But just like when he had Timothy circumcised in Acts 16, 
Or just like when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, when he said, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So maybe it's like if Paul showed up in, um, with a big group of American Christians or something, and the, this group of American Christians was committed to reading the Bible only in the King James Version and committed to only worshiping without instruments. These Christians don't watch any TV and they listen to only Christian music. Paul doesn't, at, when he's first meeting these people, he doesn't like show up to their church preaching from an ESV. And he doesn't like stop in the middle of his sermon to like play a Led Zeppelin electric guitar solo or something just to like show them his freedom in Christ. No, sometimes you have to earn an audience before you gain an audience. And sometimes you can lose an audience before you even open your mouth. Paul is approaching these people with gentleness, with patience and with wisdom, not just like shooting condemnation from the hip. And then if they reject him, well, of course they would because they're so wicked or something. No, sometimes evangelism takes patience and wisdom. And while God is sovereign over life and over salvation, sometimes evangelism takes adaptability. It takes a willingness to try to seek to persuade. But in all of this, as he is about to go out and to try to win and gain this audience, Paul has got to have the memory of Agabus with a belt tied around his hands and his feet just burned into his memory. Maybe Paul's holding out hope. Maybe he's holding out hope that the prophecy was wrong. Agabus was crazy. All these warners were actually not warning him in the spirit. But I think he has to know what's coming. Just like it was 25 or so years before when Jesus of Nazareth himself came into town, Jerusalem is a powder keg. Tensions, theological and political, are hot. So when he's almost done with his seven-day purification process, some Asian Jews, perhaps some of the same agitators who have followed him from Ephesus, they grab Paul and they start yelling in verse 28. They say, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought, brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. Luke then follows up and tells us that an Ephesian named Trophimus had come with Paul, and he was here in Jerusalem. And these guys are saying, they're assuming and probably then slandering and spreading this rumor that Paul had snuck this Ephesian Gentile, into the very temple. No, no. That's a, that's a big no-no. Paul is just clearly trying to burn the whole thing down. The fuse is lit. They drag him from the temple courts. They close the doors behind him, and they're ready to kill him. Now, remember way back in Acts 9, when Jesus himself confronted Paul. Then... We were calling him Saul in this book. Confronted him on the road to Damascus. How did Jesus address Saul on the road? He said, Saul, 
Saul, why do you persecute me? This double name address. Saying his name twice. Like if I wanted to get one of, the, one of my kids' attention, I might say their name twice. Or it's kind of like that move that your mom did with your first and middle name. Like if my mom ever called me Nathan, I knew I was fine. But if she called me Nathaniel Van, the same way, that's what Jesus was doing with Saul on the road. Well, in Luke 13, Jesus himself spoke to the entire city of Jerusalem in the same way. Luke 13, Jesus is up on the mountain. He's overlooking the city and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing All throughout Israel's history, God had sent prophets to his people to urge repentance, to urge obedience, to urge mercy and love and justice. Jesus saw himself as the greatest prophet, but he certainly saw himself in a long line of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah who were all rejected by Israel. In fact, just before Stephen was stoned in Acts 7, he asked the city of Jerusalem, he said, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And so we are not surprised to see the same reaction against Paul here. And as we said throughout Acts, this isn't like anti-Semitism or something. This isn't Luke or me trying to paint the Jews in a bad light to make them the evil ones of the story or something. After all, it's not like Paul had just been like cruising through the Mediterranean world, preaching Christ to the Gentiles, and all of these Gentiles just received this news of Christ and then now were completely transformed and lived their lives in obedience and grace. No! Paul has been beaten and imprisoned in the face of riots in almost every single city that he's stopped in. So the riot here in Jerusalem isn't surprising. The people of Jerusalem are sinful, self-centered people just like everyone else in the world. They do not like the proclamation or the implications of Christ as king of the universe and as Christ as king over their individual lives. It's not surprising. But it's just sad. After all, Paul says in Romans 9, after that whole bit that he would like substitute his own salvation for uh, the salvation of his countrymen, he says this, he says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. They should know. They should want to know. But in spite of all of this, they are still rejecting the kingdom of Christ in order to preserve their own kingdom. They are rejecting the prophets and the messengers of God to keep the status quo. They are acting and living like humans. In Christ church, may this not be us. Like we thought about over and over and over again throughout Exodus, it While it might be our first impulse, we should never react or read through the narratives of the Bible and shake our heads disappointingly at these hopeless people. Stupid Israel. There you go again. No, for those of us who are Christians and who are living in the full freedom of Christ, 
We can perhaps be thankful that we haven't rejected the Christ, that we haven't rejected that news of his gospel, but reading of the reaction of this crowd should not elicit in us pride. Reading the reaction of this crowd should instead hold up a mirror to our own selves, that but for the grace of God, there go I. And not necessarily that we'll be like tempted toward mob violence or something, even though human psychology is an interesting thing and peer pressure, mob pressure certainly doesn't evaporate once you graduate high school or something. But more than that, might we always be a people of humility? Might we always remain teachable, always remain receptive when someone comes to preach Christ in our life? to preach the implications of the freedom of the gospel, the life in the Spirit, that our Father in heaven, that the Son of creation, that the Spirit of life wants all of us, that there are no closets or back rooms in the household of our hearts that we get to keep locked or keep the triune God out of, that he wants to transform and conform our habits and our actions, but also our motives and our desires, our speech, our emotions, all of us, not just our outward conformity to following the law, all of us. He wants to transform us into a people of love, into a people of joy, a people of peace, a people of patience, a people of kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, a people of self-control. People who not only pretend to be like Jesus, but who are becoming like Jesus, so united to his life and death and glorious resurrection. Just this week I read that to speak of being in Christ or of losing self to find Christ is not about loss of identity. It's not about absorption into the divine or the negation of self as it is in Buddhism. It's not about losing your identity, not about losing yourself. It is to say that one's true self is only known in relation to God and being determined in God. That is, get this, that becoming the character of Jesus by wearing the Jesus costume by becoming like him, conformed to his image, is actually the truest and freest version of yourself. It is life in Christ, the life that God has created you for, to now be rescued from your sin, rescued from your selfishness, rescued from your death, to be made alive in him and to be set free, to be the truest and freest version of yourself in him. But this pathway to life, this pathway to glory, this pathway is also a pathway of suffering. As one of my seminary professors says, Jesus did not say, take up your couch and follow me. Take up your cross. Our Savior has beckoned us to follow him, holding the device of our own execution. That is madness to an unbelieving world. But it is sweetness 
And it is comfort if we trust the shepherd who is leading us through death to life, through suffering to joy. Paul knew this. Right here, right here, in the same spot outside the temple, the same spot in geography and place, where 25 years earlier, the crowd cried out to Pilate. They said, away with this man. Now here, they scream at the Roman soldiers in verse 36 about Paul. They say, away with him. This person who is united to Christ had become repugnant to them. Jesus nor Paul went looking for suffering, but out of love of God and out of love for their neighbor, Jesus and Paul both moved with gentle, patient courage. Resolve. Obedience. And as the world rejected Jesus, it should come as no surprise for the world to reject his people. But that's okay. As the Roman soldiers rescue Paul from the immediate rage of the crowd, his trial here is only beginning. We've got about seven more chapters. But Acts 21 forces us to ask some really hard questions of ourselves. Perhaps some questions that you might ask for yourself and amongst yourselves, but also amongst yourselves. Maybe over dinner tonight. Maybe over coffee this week. Questions like, who are you? Who do you belong to? Yourself? Do you belong to Christ? Has he bought you? What do you live for? Maybe try to answer this question. We answered a, and recited a question earlier, but perhaps you might answer this question as if you were really honest with yourself, with a mirror in front of you. Answer that question, and then answer this question again with an even deeper and better truth. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Perhaps answer that honestly. And then ask yourself or ask of each other again, what is your only hope in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Maybe so. Let those words, these words, by the power of the Spirit through life together seep more deeply into every nook and cranny, into our hearts and our minds and our souls. May it be so. Let me pray for that. Our Father in heaven, you are glorious above all glory. You have created this universe. You have created each and every one of us. You know our names. You know the number of the hairs on our heads. You know us more deeply than we know ourselves. And yet, you have still pursued us. Great is your faithfulness, O God. 
we see ourselves and we are horrified often by our weakness, by our sin, but you have loved us to the uttermost. Lord Jesus, you have pursued us and sought us and bought us. Might this truth and this reality make us wholeheartedly and willing, ready from now on to live for you. To live for you in our own hearts, in our own minds, and to live for you for our unbelieving neighbors and the unbelieving nations surrounding us. God, send us, use us, that you might get all of the glory. We pray these things in Christ's powerful name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.